0: Hey, Rubicon listeners, it's Brian. Before we get started this week, I wanted to share the exciting news that I'll be writing a new weekly newsletter here at Crooked Media. It's called Big Tent. It'll be all about the latest developments in the 2020 campaign, how important they are, and whether they'll change what's at stake in this election. The first edition comes out next Friday, January 31st, but you can subscribe today at crooked.com slash Big Tent. I'm really psyched about this, so I hope you sign up and encourage people you know to sign up too. We're making it hard for you. We're making it hard for you to say no. We're making it hard for you to say, I don't want to hear from these people. I don't want to see these documents. We're making it hard. It's not our job to make it easy for you.
1: The president is on trial in the Senate, but the Senate is on trial in the eyes of the American people. So far, I'm sad to say, I see a lot of senators voting for a cover-up.
0: If we don't stand up to this peril today, We will write the history of our decline with our own hand. The impeachment trial of Donald Trump has finally begun. Or has it? In the most consequential sense, what you've read is true. The trial of Donald Trump is underway. There's only one Senate proceeding that will end in Donald Trump's acquittal or conviction. And this is it. What I mean, though, is should what we're witnessing in the Senate really be called a trial? And the answer is... We don't really know yet. In the wee hours of Wednesday morning on a purely party-line basis, the Senate passed Mitch McConnell's resolution establishing the rules for this so-called trial. The vote was 53-47. And over the course of the preceding 13 hours, those same 53 Republicans rejected proposal after proposal to bring the trial closer into alignment with what the public demands of them. They declined to subpoena witnesses like White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and former National Security Advisor John Bolton. They declined to subpoena all of the thousands of documents the Trump administration withheld from the impeachment inquiry. They rejected procedural amendments that would have made the unfolding of the trial, the schedule, the rules of evidence less tilted to Trump's advantage. What does that mean? In a best-case scenario, it means we'll only see the testimony and documents that Trump denied to the impeachment inquiry after senators have heard opening statements and questioned the impeachment managers. In other words, the people who decide this case would only learn the full truth after the main presentations are over. That's the opposite of how real trial courts structure trials. But to the extent that the main purpose of this impeachment is exposing the truth and holding people accountable for it, the truth would still come out. In a worst-case scenario, we'll get nothing. Or worse still, Trump's lawyers will introduce partial, cherry-picked, misleading evidence while Senate Republicans vote to conceal the complete evidentiary record. So while history will call what we're watching the trial, how should we, the public, think about it? What if the Senate completes a trial in a way that plainly violates the oath senators take to do impartial justice? If the public overwhelmingly believes a fair trial calls for the production of concealed evidence and the president's party denies it and uses raw power to acquit the president anyhow, what does it mean for the impeachment power? What does it mean for the legitimacy of our whole constitutional system? What does it mean for the coming election? My guest this week is Harvard Law Professor Noah Feldman. You might remember him from a recent House Judiciary Committee hearing where he and other scholars placed the impeachment of Donald Trump in historical and constitutional context. He's also the host of the Deep Background podcast, which applies that same kind of context to other big stories of the day. We'll discuss the trial of Donald Trump such as it is and such as it might be. I'm Brian Boytler, and this is Rubicon. Noah Feldman, welcome to Rubicon.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I wanted to start about a month ago. Um, First, you testified as an expert witness for Democrats that that Donald Trump's conduct constituted high crimes. And shortly thereafter, the House passed the two articles of impeachment. Um, But then when Nancy Pelosi was was sort of withholding the articles of impeachment for tactical advantage, you got some pushback uh, for an article you wrote arguing – Um, that Trump could contend that he hadn't actually been impeached um, or that the impeachment wouldn't really be legitimate until Pelosi allowed the trial to commence. Is that a fair summary of of that article?
1: Yeah, more or less. I, I would just say what I was saying is that impeachment has a meaning under the Constitution. It's the meaning that it's always had. And the meaning is that the House of Representatives goes into the Senate and says, you're impeached. And in the olden days, they did that by literally sending one person from the House who went over and stood at the bar of the Senate and said the words, I impeach President so-and-so on behalf of the House. And in the modern day, we do it by sending over official notice of the articles of impeachment. But either way, that's when the impeachment happens. So I was actually, when I wrote it, I had no thought of getting anybody mad at me. I was just trying to clarify <laughs> that that is what, when impeachment actually takes place, even though we have a tendency to say when the House votes oh, he's been impeached. And as I explained, you know, it's nothing wrong with the New York Times writing Trump impeached. They're using a shorthand. But that's because in every single instance until this one, the moment the House voted, they walked across the floor of the Capitol and delivered the articles or notice of the articles to the Senate. This is the first time they didn't do that. And so I just wanted to, to really clarify. And my editor and I were very surprised when half a million people had something to say about it.
0: So I could nerd out about the the various uh, arguments that you made in that piece probably all day, um, but one thing I took away from the piece as a whole was this idea, or the sort of implicit contention that these powers in the Constitution aren't defined only by the by the words that enumerate them or the consequences that follow when they're deployed, but by more abstract notions of of legitimacy, of public legitimacy. Uh, is is that what you were trying to convey? Is that how you see things?
1: I think you're making a really profound point about the nature of legitimacy, and I'm flattered that you attribute it to me. So whether it's yours or mine, we can we can put to one side. We can share the credit. But let me rephrase what I, what I think is the case here. What I hear you saying, and I, I think this is totally true, is that when you follow the rules, then you can say that what you've done is legitimate. And that makes sense, because if you think about it, impeachment is all about bringing down the president for not following our most basic and most important rules. So if you're going to engage the special break-the-glass constitutional procedure for emergencies where the president has to be removed from office, and that's what impeachment is, you better also follow the rules, and you better do so in a way that's public so that everyone can see you following the rules so that the public will understand that there is legitimacy to what the government is doing, that it's not, as President Trump would have us think, a coup d'etat. It's not, as some observers would say, just a vote of no confidence. No, it's recognizing that when the president has broken our most basic norms, something must be done. And to do that, you better follow our most basic norms.
0: So I, I, I wanted to apply this basic uh, way of thinking to what's happening in the Senate now is—is—is is, is there a similar kind of argument we could uh, apply to an impeachment trial? Uh, like, if the House can vote to impeach a president without actually having impeached him, can the Senate vote to end an impeachment trial without having actually tried the president?
1: I think the analogy that you draw is a great one, and my short answer is yes. We should make that same set of arguments. Bottom line, the Constitution says that it's up to the House to impeach, and then it says that it's up to the Senate to try, to hold the trial. And if you don't have witnesses, most people would conclude that you haven't really had a trial. And that's, first of all, borne out by what people are saying in response to pollsters. Two polls have shown large majorities of Americans, close to three quarters, saying, call witnesses, because it's a trial. But it's also borne out by the history of how impeachment trials have always been done. In every impeachment trial we've ever had, and not just the two presidential impeachments, but the dozen-plus judicial impeachments that we've had in the last few hundred years, there have always been witnesses, often a whole bunch of witnesses. And that's because a trial involves gathering evidence and not just relying on evidence that comes from somewhere else. So if the Senate doesn't do that, even if it could say, well, technically, we're the jury, we're the judge, we chose by a 51 to 49 vote or what have you not to call witnesses, the public will understand that there hasn't really been a genuine and legitimate trial. And that I think is, is, you know, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, no, no. Uh, Continue if you have further thoughts.
1: That I think would be a major consequence for the country if that's indeed what the Senate does. And, you know, you can see this going two ways. If the Senate does, in fact, hear witnesses, then regardless of the outcome, it will have engaged in a legitimate procedure. If it doesn't hear witnesses, then lots of people will say, you didn't do it right, and the constitutional system of impeachment is broken.
0: So I want to try to pinpoint where uh, along the line, uh, as best we can anyway, uh, uh, this trial process uh, can kind of transform from an exercise in in raw power politics to something that that we as the as citizens should should view as as legitimate, right? Like the text of the Constitution doesn't technically obligate the Senate to conduct a trial at all or to try every article of impeachment that the House passes. Um, but the rules of the Senate do, and every time the House has passed articles of impeachment against a president or a judge or another officer, a trial has followed. Um, so I think that in the extreme case, right, if Mitch McConnell and 51 of his members voted to change precedent and just not convene the trial, then no – you know, <laughs> other, than, other than some very partisan people, nobody would legitimately or honestly be able to say that Trump had been acquitted, right? There has to be uh, the, the, the beginning of some kind of proceeding for on the other end of it uh, anyone to claim vindication.
1: Yeah, and can I push back on the premise just a little bit? you're right that in the provision of the Constitution that gives the Senate the power to try impeachments, it gives them the power. It doesn't formally say they have the obligation. But remember that the House has the sole power to impeach. And remember Mm -hmm. that, at least as I believe, impeachment isn't just the vote. Impeachment is going into the Senate and prosecuting the case. So if the Senate blocked the House from actually appearing and prosecuting its case there's an argument to be made. I'm not saying it's a knockdown argument, but there's an argument to be made that that would have actually robbed the House of its power to impeach. Because if the House says, we show up and impeach, and the Senate says, yeah, no, you don't, we're not listening, arguably the impeachment power has been, the House's impeachment power has been substantially undercut. Broadly speaking, I do I do agree with what you're saying. I think that if the Senate just ignored the charges did not deliberate, did not hear arguments of any kind. Then formally, we could say the president had not, in fact, been been cleared. That said, you know they could do that, as you as you've pointed out. That's within the Senate's de facto power. They could do that in the real world. They're not doing that. They are at a very minimum hearing arguments from the House managers, and they're going to hear arguments as well from Donald Trump's lawyers. And then there will be questions that the senators submit in writing. So those procedures are happening. The big question, as you and I are speaking, is whether they will also be witnesses.
0: Right, and so, and you know, in in that extreme scenario, uh, gavel in, uh, vote to acquit, gavel out. You know, basically nothing, nothing else. Um, it would be reasonable in. in uh, in the same way that an impeachment hasn't been consummated in review until the House presents the articles to the Senate, it would be legitimate for the for the House to contend that that it had uh, that the case had not actually been tried even if the you know only formal requirements of the Senate had in in some technical way been met.
1: Yeah, and you know, depending on how much you and your listeners like the inside baseball. There's only one. There's only. <laughs> I like it. There, there, there's only one instance, uh, all the way back in 1797, where the Senate dismissed an impeachment charge, and in that situation, they did it because the House impeached a senator, and the senator then was expelled from the Senate, and the senators got together after this. The House was ready to keep on impeaching. You know, they were ready to prosecute the impeachment. And the Senate got together, and there were two arguments against going forward. One was that the guy's not a senator anymore, so it's over. But the second was that under the Constitution, it's not at all clear that senators are civil officers who can be impeached. And so the Senate voted to dismiss the impeachment on the grounds that, as it put it, it didn't have jurisdiction, which is just the technical legal word for saying it didn't have any power to proceed. Now, they didn't say whether that was because the guy was a senator which is what most people think today, or because he had already been expelled from the Senate. They just said, we can't go forward. But that's the only time it's ever happened. And some people have said ever since, well, that means there can be a vote to dismiss in the Senate. And, you know, Democrats were the ones who wanted a vote to dismiss in the Senate when Bill Clinton was being impeached. My own view is it doesn't follow from that case that it's clear that the Senate can just dismiss a case. They did it, but that was because they had no authority they were sort of saying, you came to the wrong place and this is the wrong guy. If there's a legitimate charge against a legitimate subject of impeachment, I'm not at all sure that the Senate can justifiably or legitimately just
0: dismiss. So I want to get to the, the, the question of, of, of how important hearing testimony, uh, uh, fielding evidence is to all this in a second, um, but I, maybe next step along this, uh, uh, along this spectrum what about a trial whose rules have been written by a party leader who promised not to be an impartial juror, um, uh, promised to work hand in glove with the president who'd been impeached? All of this in defiance of his two relevant oaths, just I- ignoring for a second what, what in the content of those rules, what does it say about the legitimacy of a trial that has been uh, kind of architected by somebody who has has taken those steps?
1: Well, it looks terrible, and it's definitely undercutting (laughs) of the legitimacy. And the way Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has tried to address that problem is to say that he's going to follow the precedent of how the trial was done in the Bill Clinton case. His initial proposal deviated in at least four clear ways. He then amended that so that it deviates in really two crucial ways. Still pretty different. But his attempt to invoke the precedent of the Clinton trial is his attempt to say, and don't worry, it's fair, even though I drafted these on my own and you know, got my majority to, to ram them through. So yeah, it's a it's a problem. I don't know that it's a problem that's so deep as to completely delegitimate the process, but it's genuinely a challenge.
0: Okay. So let's turn away from, from the constitutional design question and talk about actual precedent. Um, uh, the particular rules that McConnell... Ultimately adopted, or the, the, that his 53 members voted to adopt, they structure the trial kind of backwards from I think what we would imagine uh, happens in most uh, trial courts. Um, to maybe, maybe, possibly compel testimony and evidence after the main presentations are over. Um, what will what will it say about the legitimacy of this impeachment trial if it ends as the first in history? where a bare partisan majority voted to shut down all fact-finding, hear from no witnesses, seek no concealed documents.
1: So I wanna draw a distinction between two different points that are embedded in what you said. The first is that the order is a little weird from the standpoint of an ordinary trial, and that's mostly true, but you do have to be fair and keep in mind that there are plenty of trials that start with opening statements from the prosecution and the defense. And although these are long opening statements, three days each, a total of 24 hours on each side, that part isn't altogether bizarre. The idea that you would start with opening statements isn't so weird. The second point you made, which I strongly agree with, is that it would be very, very strange if then after that op- those opening statements, that's the whole ball of wax. You know, then it's over and there's no attempt to call witnesses. That, to my mind, would really not look like a trial to most people because there would be no process of presenting... Evidence and seeking to get the truth through the presentation of that evidence, which is what we're accustomed to seeing in trials. It's very close to the core meaning of what the word trial is, and so if they don't do that, then I think there's going to be a big asterisk besides the beside the the story of the trial in the Trump case.
0: So on on this on the point you made about opening statements, uh, you're the you're the uh, lawyer among the b- between the two of us, but you know in in. Uh, in the opening statements, I've heard it. It's not uncommon for prosecutors to say and you will hear from a witness who will say, you know, X or you will we will talk. They they preview totally. Um, right. And, and and here the prosecutors were in effect limited um, to uh in, in, in a loose analogy, only the, um, you know, they, they couldn't tip their hand about things that weren't necessarily in, in what, uh, the, the evidentiary uh, cache that came out of the grand jury investigation. Um, they, Which you ordinarily they... can't do in a court case. I mean,
1: it, it's complicated, because in an ordinary trial, you're totally right that the prosecutor would say, and you will hear evidence that. One thing the prosecutor can't do in a trial, because it's not lawful, is to say in the opening statement, in front of the grand jury, the witnesses already said thus and such, and so therefore, the guy is guilty, because you can't, in an ordinary trial, refer to evidence that was gathered outside of the trial. The whole principle of due process of law is that the evidence has to be brought to bear right there in front of the jury. So that's not what happens in an ordinary trial at all. The prosecutors here, the House managers, had no choice but to do that because They may not have a chance to call any witnesses, but they did have more leeway than an ordinary prosecutor would because they can refer freely to all of the evidence that was gathered in front of the House, which you could not do in a criminal trial.
0: I guess the way I think about all this is that there are signals the Senate can and and has in the past provided to indicate to the public, I guess, that the trial outcome uh, uh, would reflect impartial justice, right? Like one is through consensus if if senators agree on the trial rules 100 to 0 like they did in the in the Clinton case that's a pretty strong indication that the Senate believes it's equipped to render judgment fairly and another would be like the completeness of the record mm-hmm. uh, you know the, if the question is has it received or sought all the information it needs to make decisions about guilt and the answer is yes that's a pretty strong indication that the public whether they're happy with the outcome or not, should should treat it as legitimate. Um, yeah, you're uh, right. So and, the, and I, you know,
1: what you're saying, which is completely true and correct, raises a really fascinating question to me, which is given that the Republicans in the Senate know they 99% likelihood have the votes to vote not to remove Donald Trump from office, and given that they could get the legitimacy you're describing by having a fair and agreed upon procedure and then listening to the witnesses and then voting, why aren't they doing it? I mean, that really is a hard question. And I don't mean to ask that in some, you know, purely rhetorical by saying, why aren't they doing that? I'm trying to force them into doing it. I'm actually asking it as a genuine question. What is it that they're so concerned about? I mean, if John Bolton testifies and says his worst, do we really think that that's going to move enough senators to change the outcome, to get us to a two-thirds majority necessary to remove Donald Trump, I would be stunned if that were the case. So, you know, because if, I mean, imagine the worst thing that John Bolton can say. Yes, I went into Donald Trump and I told him, you know, this violates national security and it's an impeachable offense. And he said to me, I don't care. You know, I want to get reelected. Imagine that that was the testimony. Do we really believe that would get us to a two-thirds majority of senators? I kind of don't. And so I don't really understand at a deep level why the Senate majority is taking the risk of the whole trial being seen as illegitimate, unless you think that the answer is that they are so committed to the idea that the whole process is illegitimate, they're so committed to Donald Trump's narrative, that the whole impeachment is, as he keeps on saying, a hoax, you know, fake, that they just think there's nothing wrong with doing it their way as a hoax and as a fake. And then they'll just say, yeah, well, they did a hoax, we did a hoax.
0: I do think that on a, on a like working on a on a completely different plane that there is something important about trying to f- get Congress to win in this basic question of whether these people have to uh, testify, whether these documents have to be produced in an impeachment that's in part about obstruction of Congress, that 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 whether it. Um, has any bearing on how the senators ultimately vote, or if the senators ultimately vote to acquit on both charges anyway, that if this process ends with the obstruction, both having been, uh, you know, uh, attempted, and then B having been successful, and then C he gets acquitted anyway, that that's just a roadmap for future presidents to engage in wholesale cover ups like this. And I mean, maybe that's a maybe that's a, a, you know, kind of argument that, That the house manager should be making about why this testimony is important, even though there's already enough to convict. Um, But that's one thing that's actually worried me about how what's going to happen if they get to the end of all this, they uh, vote not to hear uh, any more witnesses, see any more documents, and then acquit, and then uh, have have you know in a in a trial that was about obstructing Congress in part.
1: That's a great point, and I'm also worried about that. You know, one thing that I have been saying all along about the obstruction of Congress article of impeachment is the reason you know that it was appropriate to impeach the president is if Congress starts an impeachment inquiry and the president stonewalls, says I'm not going to cooperate, in the end, the only remedy left that saves us from a presidency that's completely above the law is impeachment. Like, that's the only thing you can do if you're the House, right? You say you're going to impeach, and the president says, ha, I won't cooperate. You know, you can't go to the courts and compel it, not realistically. And frankly, it's entirely possible that the courts would have said, not our problem. You know, impeachment is your sole power, not ours. So then all you can do is is to impeach under those circumstances. And if, you know, the president is then, nevertheless, not removed from office, it does send that message, as you say, that the president can just get away with it. And that's very worrisome for the basic structure, basic structure of our government. Some future presidents might not want to be impeached, and I will say that the second article of impeachment was unnecessary from the president's perspective. He could have fought the individual witnesses one at a time without announcing in that grand way that he did, that he wouldn't cooperate in any way. And if he had done that, he would have escaped that second article of impeachment. So, you know, that was, I would call that an unforced error. I actually think it was an unforced error that should be attributed at least in part to the White House counsel who wrote that letter and and signed that letter and who is now defending the president. So apparently the president doesn't think it was an error because he's relying on the same <laughs> guy right now to defend him. That's a separate question. Like, why is that okay? Um, yeah. But bottom line, there is a serious, serious danger that if presidents think they can get away with just stonewalling, that the Congress congressional power to impeach will just be eroded to nothing.
0: Let's let's wind down on on that point because I I think it's right to say this will be the first time the Senate has used its sole power to try impeachment to uh, conceal rather than consider evidence. Period. Right. I think so. Yeah. I mean I can't think of
1: any prior example where they're yeah where they're not trying to get witnesses not trying to get
0: more information. So just taking it as a given that impeachment supporters and Democrats and you know, hopefully a growing list of people as time goes on, um, talk about it that way and try to like leave an asterisk next to this trial. What will the consequences for the impeachment power be going forward? Or can we even say anything about that before the next election?
1: Well, as you say, the election is hugely significant. And we will interpret events in light of that election after the fact, even if there's no good hard scientific reason to think they ought to be. So if Trump is not removed from office, as seems probable, and is then reelected, we and the judgment of history will be, boy, impeachment has completely lost the oomph that it historically had. You know, the idea that, you know, Bill Clinton's legacy was seriously tainted by impeachment, the idea that Richard Nixon resigned rather than being uh, running the risk of being impeached, not just removed, but but impeached, that will look like a, a very faint... A relic of a of a lost time. If, on the other hand, Trump is not convicted and then loses in the election, even if he would have lost in the election anyway, you know, people will say, "Well, you see, impeachment is vindicated. Maybe you weren't able to remove the president from office, but the taint of impeachment was so significant that it had an impact on the presidential election." And we'll want to tell ourselves that story because we want to legitimate our existing institutions. You know, we have this creaky old constitution you know, 225 plus years old, and there's a way in which, you know, no other country in the world still runs its affairs in this way. Since we enacted our constitution, France has been through five reboots, right? France is on what they call their fifth <laughs> republic. That's their 5.0, it's their version 5.0 of their constitution at a time that we're still stuck with basically the same thing, although with, you know, with the reconstruction amendments added in. But when it comes to impeachment, we've got the exact same creaky thing we've already ha- always had. And it's possible that it just doesn't work anymore, and you know that's something that's painful. But we need to confront that reality.
0: I, I want to offer you a chance to close on a on a happier thought, if you have <laughs> one for for uh, listeners, or if 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 there's any sort of optimistic side to how you you see these events playing out.
1: Well, there is. I mean, there is because right now, while you and I are speaking, we're we're in the middle of events, and. Mm-hmm. I think you know it's appropriate for us to be honest, as I think you've been, and I'm trying to be also, about the genuine threat to the structure of our institutions that exists. But we are not speaking right now at a point where those institutions are destroyed. You know, the President of the United States took actions that, to my mind at least, are clearly at the core of what the framers thought should be impeachable, and he was impeached. So in that sense, the institution is working correctly. As we speak, the institution is working correctly, and that impeachment occurred. You know, the trial may, in certain ways, be illegitimate. The non-removal of the president, if that's what happens, may, in certain ways, be illegitimate. There are all these problems. They're real. We've been talking about them. But it remains possible, still, that our democratic institutions will be robust enough to save us. You know, Donald Trump could lose the next election, and then we will be able to tell ourselves with some credibility we got through it you know our long national nightmare will then in some way be over we we shouldn't be naive about it even if that happens we should go back and look at what we can do better but that is still a possible outcome and i don't think we should forget that either so uh, we're not i don't think our conversation has been all doom and gloom we're in the middle of things identifying genuine meaningful risks but those risks also may be resolved in a way that is healthy for democracy and actually vindicates our institutions rather than revealing them to be failures.
0: That's the note I want to end on. Um, (laughs) Okay, okay, everyone uh, should go check out new episodes of Noah's podcast, Deep Background, starting February 5th. Uh, Noah, thanks for coming on Rubicon. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week. By next week, we should have settled the biggest outstanding question about the legitimacy of this trial. Will Republicans have voted to allow the Senate to see new evidence or not? That will be perhaps the most fateful vote of Donald Trump's presidency. And whatever happens, we should all be watching closely. This show is produced by Crooked Media. It's written and hosted by me, Brian Boyler. Stephen Hoffman is our producer and editor. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts.